and also, if you guys have, I know you guys sometimes, I, I do listen to the show, so I'm a fan. So if you guys have anything that, you know, little or big that you feel like there's no other resource but me to get the answer, please feel Oh, free. well, I definitely have one very selfishly right now. I want to know <laughs> whose idea it was to cold start the hospital episode with Belinda Carlisle, Heaven is a Place on Earth. Uh, that was that was me. Um, and, uh, did we just I, become best friends? We did. The song, the song was chosen by Lizzie and the director. Um, you know, we knew we wanted to have a song kind of stuck in our head. And, you know, the music is, is often something we put on last. But here we had to decide early because actually sing it on set and move our mouth and stuff. And so initially I was like, that's such a weird choice. But often on our show that is, points us in exactly the right direction as soon as you say, that's a weird choice. <laughs> um, so uh, it, it, I, it was great, but the, the putting it right at the beginning I thought worked really well because it's such an tonally, it's just so odd. And I think if you started the episode and then had the music, you'd be like, what the hell are they doing? But you start with the music and then you have the show. You start then you're you're pushing people in the right direction. Yeah, it definitely caught your attention. I told Sarah was on with me that week because Tiana was gone, but I was like, I audibly gasped because it's like my favorite like <laughs> guilty pleasure song of all time. So I'm like super passionate about this song. I love it. And so when it just started, I was like, what is happening right now? I well, was, it definitely didn't go unnoticed. It, yeah. it isn't my super guilty pleasure song, and I noticed it too. So yeah. it stood Same. out. Yeah. Uh, uh, one thing. Yeah. What I'm looking. My my my. Uh, genre for music is is kind of forgotten earworms oh there you go that's beautiful (laughs) i like that uh so kind of related to that and uh something i hadn't really thought about asking you but that sarah and i talked about i think tiana and i talked about a couple times you've done some interesting things this season and maybe we just didn't catch it until this season at the end credits um specifically in that episode uh with the um kind of life support monitors kind of beeping into the end of the credits and then slowly you know fading away um, and also some other things that you've done with, and maybe I'm just reading too much into it, where the lyrics of the particular songs that are playing at the end of the show stop uh, during the credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's kind of been some interesting things there. So can you talk to us about that as a creative choice and if, if we're reading too much into that or if that's something that is uh, real? Uh, well, uh, you're not reading too much into anything. We do o- almost everything we do on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, it's not that long a television show when you get right down to it, you know, somewhere between 40 and 65 minutes. That's not a lot of minutes to tell a story. So every single thing that's on screen and every single thing you hear is, is there because we chose to put it there. Sometimes you guys go down rabbit holes, which are incredibly entertaining to me when something is supposed to be simple and you guys have found some real uh, interesting stuff to mind. But um, uh, but for the most part, you know, the sh- the layers of the show are there for the audience to peel apart and to make it more fun because it's on once a week, not on every night. So there's a couple of technical things about putting songs over to the final credits, which are just that, you know, when people binge it, they don't watch the final credits. Right. So it's kind of a it's an experience that is not for everybody. It's just for the people who decide to watch all the way through. Um, you know, I we have an incredible sound mixing department, and they always are trying interesting things to creatively to help tell the story from that department, as opposed to um, just you know mixing the sound. They're trying to mix the sound in a way that tells the story. So most of those ideas come from 
them, and they are all kind of meaningful. You know, it's basically their emotional state in, as a department at the end of the episode. They kind of say, this is how we feel, and they express that through the the end of the credits, and then we listen to it, you know, as a group and move things around. But, um, you know, we have an incredible composer and the great music supervisor, but in addition, we have a great sound department that finds the, you know, the music from, or the music, the, the audio from the Red Sox game or that really great sound of um, life support when, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to have the life support that she's on at the end of that episode isn't really life support. It's just enough to tell you when she's dead. So right. that sound is kind of a little harder to manufacture because you don't want it to sound like they're trying to keep her alive. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I also uh, really liked that the ending on the industrial washer sound. <laughs> um, yes. That one, oh I don't, God, I don't know why. It just it struck me as really uh, cool. Like it was like the sense that like the job had been done of cleaning up after June. I know it had the same feeling for me. I loved that. That sound was just so odd, but somehow I recognized it. I don't know. Yeah. So you mentioned us going down rabbit holes. So Tiana wrote this down so that I could ask specifically. <laughs> um, and I, I is, we need to know about if Joseph Lawrence being the name of Commander Lawrence uh, has anything to do at all with maybe you or Warren Littlefield's involvement with NBC, say, in the 90s. Uh, no. Oh. Oh. Um, I, 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 didn't, I didn't even think of Joey Lawrence until you said so. Uh, well, one rabbit hole we went down too far. That's all right. Yeah, I yeah. know I can't get out of no, my head. Listen, I knew yeah. it. Yeah, I know. Now now I can't get it out of my head. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Justin. Uh, I try. So one of the things we did want to talk about is uh, I'm kind of fascinated myself by a couple of things um, in the, the kind of changing uh, climate and landscape of television and content right now. So we've seen shows like Handmaid's Tale, like Game of Thrones and Stranger Things, all these huge shows that uh, through the fact that social media is huge now and that there's so much content out there and people can get it in so many different ways wherever they are that they develop these passionate fan bases which has two sides of that coin right uh when they love your show they love your show but when you decide to make changes uh like you guys have tried to do this season uh kind of midstream where we've got some different looks some different directors some different writing styles uh and really kind of change the tone of the show a little bit in the beginning and particularly in the middle uh, that can kind of flip, and I think we've seen a little bit of that. Um, and I know you're not immune to it because you listen to us and you, you know, are active on social media. So talk about trying to navigate expectations in this new climate of content everywhere, social media everywhere, and instant reactions. Well, I think television television shows used to be more of a Rube Goldberg device. They'd move in an interesting way, but they wouldn't go anywhere on purpose. You know, it's like you know at the end of every episode of you know three's company you wanted to restart the same with the same dynamic and the same thing on most shows you know longevity was was you know you encased the dynamic in amber and you never changed it you know sam and diane never got together eventually they did which was a good lesson but for me television has now moved into a place where you you don't you we can't do that anymore you can't just keep repeating the same franchise story scenario over and over again first of all if you ever watch anything binging you notice that immediately that every you know every season or every eight episodes feel exactly the same so i think we're beyond that so i think 
or at least for me, with this story, you know, it's not a franchise story. She's not going to keep pounding her head against the same wall over and over again, and that's going to be entertaining. So I think the fact is that we have to move on from where we were at the beginning, and if the show doesn't change and doesn't move on, then it we're not telling a story from beginning to end. We're just retelling the same story over and over again, which I don't want to do. Yeah, no, I totally get that. We also wanted to know, has there been any reaction to anything this season, speaking of your fan base, that has surprised you? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's the, the thing I'm, um, I, I mean, I'm always surprised. Um, anything anybody says that's even slightly bad breaks my heart and makes me... Of course. You know, I, I, I take it way too hard. And um, so... Uh, so I don't read a ton, especially, you know, kind of as you get deeper into the show, people get meaner. I mean, it's just the way of the world. Um, you know, yeah. uh, people, you know, keep expecting you to come up with new stuff and you're also, you know, you're trying to, you know, maintain all the old stuff so you get bloated. And so I don't want to do any of that thing. The th- one of the things that surprised me is the fact that people are not just angry at June for what she does. They think that she's a moron, and they have somehow convinced themselves that they would do so much better in Gilead. Oh, yeah. The, I, I, I mean, that's the part that I – because we, I spend all my time thinking, about, okay, well, what would really happen? What would you really do? You know, and people, I just think, are full of shit when they say what they would really do. I, mean, I agree. I, that, oh, yeah. I think self-awareness you, is a rarity. You put someone out in the rain holding a rock for 24 hours until their shoulder is burning and they can't move or you shock them with that baton a few times, they would do fucking anything. Right. No, you're I agree. right. Yeah. Uh, the, we t- often talk about how we wouldn't even have made it this far. Oh, no. no we'd be, we we'd be, be super dead. dead. We'd be on the wall. <laughs> so dead. I think one of the fa- most fascinating examples of that was at the end of season two. Were you su- as surprised as everyone else that people's reaction to her not leaving and having that be like, seriously, how could you think that? Well, I... My reaction wasn't – I wasn't so surprised because we had the same discussion and argument in the writer's room, you know, a very – because either way didn't was tough to swallow. You know, if she left, I, I would say, well, you know, that, that would be a shock if she left and left her daughter behind. And if she doesn't leave, that's a total shock because why wouldn't she get out of there? But if if you're looking at what is her – what has Luke been able to get done or anybody from afar compared to what she's been able to get done from inside Gilead, she wins. They told her she'd never see her daughter again. She's seen her daughter again. They were told her she'd never fall in love. She fell in love with, with Nick. They've, everything they've told her is you'll never, ever, ever do. She's done. I don't think it's a bad bet that she thinks she can navigate there a little uh, pretty well. But listen, I mean, it's not – she certainly was torn about whether to stay or not. I think thought it was a chancy idea. But I don't know. I have three kids. that There are two of them I would leave behind, but one of them I like. <laughs> Very nice. For me, it varies by the day, but I totally understand. <laughs> so true. Yeah, um, yeah. So you did mention a buzzword that uh, a lot of people, and you know, I'm not surprised by this, but it never stops. Is the the team Nick, team Luke situation that we have going on here? So you mentioned Nick. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna get let I'm gonna give the team Nick people their satisfaction because they are very vocal in this uh, social media questioning. I'm gonna let Tiana read what they had to say. Yeah. So for the sake of our friends, Melinda Axon and. Ninochka? I read this as Ninochka, Mom of Chaos, which, again, yeah, the Mom usernames for uh, social media fantastic. are fantastic. Uh, uh, Ricky Stevens, A Home Project, and Corison. 
um, all hardcore members of Team Nick. Can you tell us what we'll be getting more of Nick and possibly more of Nick's backstory? Well, uh, uh, we have, first of all, we love Nick and we love Nick's backstory. And we've broken 92 different versions to go in 92 different episodes. And we just, we end up not having the real estate. You know, he's a fascinating character to us. And also Max is the most lovely gentleman in the world. Just a, a pleasure to, to work with. We will be seeing more of, of him um, because, but only when June sees more of him. You know, uh, we, we will do some stuff with him independent, but the show is really, from her point of view, fairly strictly. And so I think it works best when, pe- when people are out of her orbit. She has no friggin' idea what they're doing. I mean, absolutely none. Uh, because, you know, you forget it's a world without, there's no newspapers, there's no radio, there's no telephone. She doesn't know what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. You know, it's it's a completely different realm of her horizon is tiny. And so I, the way that the fans of Nick are feeling, I hope is the way that June is feeling. Like, what the fuck? Am I ever going to see this guy again? Absolutely. Uh, so in relation to that, um, as you can imagine, there's Team Nick people, there's Team Lick people, there's Team Everybody people. So uh, people want to know more about, are we going to see Emily's and her family's story up in Canada? And are we going to get more about Rita's backstory? Rita is kind of this fascinating character who has always kind of played onto the sidelines until the end of last season when she sort of led this, you know, MVP escape. Of the season. Yeah, MVP of the season. Or as she said on our, on our podcast, she was walking around her apartment or our hotel after she read it. And she's like, I'm Harriet Tubman. I'm Harriet Tubman. Uh, so we're going to get to hear <laughs> Rita. Read more of her backstory uh, or anybody else's backstories coming up or, you know, into next season, which, by the way, congratulations on your renewal for the fourth season. Thank you. Um, we we will do as many as we have uh, space for and because we're fascinated by everybody's. But in terms of, you know, uh, there, there's a little bit kind of uh, the way that I write the show is not as manipulative, I think, as the fans think I am being, you know, it's there, there seems to be this feeling of I'm trying to get you guys to feel a certain way. Like, you know, don't make me feel bad for Serena. Don't make me, you know, am I pushing team Luke or or team Nick? Yeah. And don't make me, don't make me feel sympathy for this person. It's like, I'm not trying to make you feel sympathy. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe in redemption. I don't, everybody's like, are am I trying to do a redemption arc for Serena? Like, I don't. Where do you get in real life? Who stamps you and says you're redeemed, or do you ever feel redeemed when you've done something bad that you're trying to make up for? I just think it's bullshit. You know, it's like, yes, you can look at it from the outside and say, oh, I wonder if this human being is redeemed. But am I trying to do it, or is, or is um, Serena trying to do it, or is Avon trying to do it? Nobody's trying to make you feel a certain way. We're just trying to make Serena do the shit Serena does. And so I think that that that's always interesting to me that you know there's some sort of larger intent when my intent is just i try to figure out what june would do and have her do it that's the extent of my creative thinking (laughs) well i i appreciate that because i may or may not say all the time that i find you to be setting us up to knock us down (laughs) oh my gosh all the time it's all it's all yvonne she's like she can find a way to make you feel eight things about her in the same scene. She's it's kind just, of amazing. You know, amazing. It doesn't help if she's like 5'8". 
<laughs> That's also true. Yeah. She's also talented, yeah. Yeah. No, we had that discussion on somebody posted on Facebook like who would win in a fight between her and Elizabeth Moss, like I think in real life, really comparing their characters, and I was like, There is zero chance. I mean, I know Elizabeth Moss is a scrappy little thing, but Yvonne's like five nine almost. She's got the reach, she's Stop got the height. Her. Yeah. She's got a wicked backhand we've already seen several times. Yep. So I, I don't I think. I disagree. Really? Yeah. Tiana, disagree. Tiana never, thinks, never think, bet against Lizzie. I think Elizabeth would totally. <laughs> well, we did see in this past. We did see in the past episode that. Uh, you are, as a, as a very small human, I think you are greatly discounting Elizabeth Moss's shortness. That's true. Well, and she's clearly did not skip low leg day, like we said. Uh, <laughs> yeah, low center of gravity. So, yeah, if we could, for a moment, switch gears over to Hannah and the Children of Gilead. Um, some of our social media sure. friends by the name of Rosalina Garcia, Carolyn Hanout, Vivian and Tina, which were callers, um, they would like to know whether or not we'll get any episodes that explore things from the perspective of the Children of Gilead. Just any more detail uh, on what some, they experience. We do some of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, we do some of that. Um uh, moving forward, just a little bit of it. I mean, once again, it's June's point of view. So as much as June finds out about kind of what it's like for children's lives in Gilead, um, uh, you know, we, we, we went to a school, you know, that she went to a school for domestic arts. We're trying to let stuff out the same way June would find it out. Okay. Um, you know, because so much, because, you know, because her child is still there and living that life, every single morsel she finds out is putting together a huge piece. Like she finds out, oh, she goes to school. She's allowed to play outside. She plays with other children. Isn't that nice? So um, we definitely are trying to kind of drop more of those hints in there. But in some ways, there's not a ton of that in the novel. No. And as much as I know it sounds strange, I'm, I still feel like we're telling that story. We're, I'm still very restrained by that story, and I don't sure. want to go outside of her point of view um, more than I have to. Wait, so I have, I have a, a follow-up to that. So how do you make the decisions about what do we learn that we only learn it as a uh, show? As, yeah, as the protagonist will learn it versus things like what's happening in Canada and what's happening to the Waterfords while they're, you know, trying to work behind the scenes and see what's going on. How do you make those decisions uh, about what, what we will learn that, that June just has no idea is going on? I have strict decided on rules that I, that I go with, and I hope it doesn't take anybody's fun out of the show. But every single thing that, that's in the show is something June saw about, heard about from someone she trusted or feels comfortable enough because she knew the players imagining what that situation was like after it happened. Hmm. So all of it is her voiceover, her tapes that, that were found. So she either witnessed or feels comfortable reporting on a situation, either reimagining it or um, she's heard from someone who was there who she feels, you know, comfortable either, you know, guessing what, you know, what they were feeling or, or replaying it in the way that they described it. So the, the whole, the whole, I mean, it's, that's very kind of inside baseball heady about the way I think about the show. Um, but it is the handmade tale and it's still that box of tapes that they found under the floor in the house in Maine. And this is what was on them is this story. So it's all her. That is okay. fascinating because that kind of changes the way you watch the show. Yeah, definitely. Knowing when that. I think about the things yeah. that we know that, uh, you know, at the point in time we're watching June, she doesn't know, like, like how is – Right. Emily reconciling with her wife and things like that. Like, that's really interesting right. to think about that this might be how she is imagining that would 
go or something or was that told she learns about how, later. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, that is very interesting. Right. And or or the other option is is she going to eventually connect up with mm-hmm. Emily and and hear those stories. So uh, you know, there's a couple of, of possibilities there. Wow, that does, that does kind of shift your entire viewing experience and like view of the show. That's interesting. Yeah. Um. So sticking with uh, some of the world building and characters that you guys are doing, uh, one of the fascinating things for me specifically this season has been June and Commander Lawrence's relationship and the direction that those two characters have taken. Um, because as I've, I've kind of noticed as the seasons have progressed from the kind of end of last season to this season, that they're very similar characters in the way they handle themselves and their personalities. They're on two opposite sides of this society, obviously, but they also have, you know, done both had these plans that have ended up in other people being victimized by them. They have one person kind of in their lives that they are solely holding on to all of this for. And now, after the events of episode 11, they're brought together and kind of on the same level, more or less. Uh, so tell us about writing those two characters, and do you view them kind of similarly as well as kind of two uh, opposite sides of the same coin? Um, uh, writing those characters, I mean, it's, it was fascinating from the beginning. First of all, we got to establish a little bit of Commander Lawrence before he was interacting with June, which was very helpful um, to kind of give him a – because for us as an audience, when you see someone interact with two people, you get a much better sense of how they – you know, two handmaids gives us a lot more information about him than one handmaid. So you can get better sense of who he is. But Bradley came in, you know, he understood exactly who I was getting at from the beginning, you know, kind of a Robert McNamara character who, you know, has done something, you know, terrible uh, in the real world by doing something that was a thought experiment in his academic world. Uh, in terms of their similarity, they have tons of similarities, which I think underlines their differences. Um, for, for they they are in a lot of ways exactly the same kind of person, uh, you know, trying to survive, trying to protect the people that they love. But on the other hand, June has an outsized and sometimes handicapping sense of empathy. That m- almost everything she does, she does out of empathy, and and it gets in her way when she has to do something that she is you know that's more ruthless. Um, he doesn't have any empathy. At all, except for his wife. I was just going to say. And so he has outsized empathy, but for one person, she has outsized empathy for everybody. And that's a really interesting place to see them overlap is that she cannot forgive him or understand or or make it okay that he cares that much about his wife. He doesn't give a shit about those women in cages. I mean, you cannot she cannot believe that he genuinely feels that way about his wife if he genuinely was being so shitty to every other person on the planet. So I, I, I like the fact that um, the, the more Lawrence can be a puzzle for June, the, the more interesting I am, I, more interested I am in watching, and the harder the puzzle, the better. So she, it can't be something she can easily figure it out. And the best thing was that she picked Fred like a $2 lock, you know. <laughs> she, she just knew exactly what to do with Fred, you know, she just presented her breasts and Fred, you know, melted. It doesn't, not only doesn't it work with, with Lawrence, nothing really works with Lawrence. It's so impossible to, you know, manipulate him that, uh, you know, she has to fall back on being honest. You know, it's, it's a terrible position to be in. But anyway, it's, uh, their overlaps and, and they're fascinating characters. The other thing that's remarkable, and this is a completely 
inside the show. They've worked together before. They worked, you know, the two actors worked together on West they Wing. They were on the West Wing, Lizzie that's was, right. I, Lizzie was oh, a kid. Yeah. You know, she was 17 years old. They weren't in very many scenes together, but think about it from Bradley's point of view. You know, Bradley Whitford was on West Wing. He's had a great career. This, And then he gets to go and be, not not act with, but be on the show of someone who he worked with when she was 17. And, and he thought, oh, my God, she's amazing. I wonder what's going to happen to her. And now he gets to come under her show. I, I mean, he's so proud of her. <laughs> and Very so, that, so they, It's so sweet. Um, they're they're amazing together, and he's like in awe of her and thinks that she's wonderful, and and she's become everything he hoped that she would become. It's really, it's it's very fun to watch, and it also allows them to push a lot harder. They can be a lot weirder. They can you know, uh, they can both in those scenes push each other a lot harder because they know each other. They have such a kind of a long, almost a kind of a family history together. Yeah, um, as we were just talking about, uh, the relationship between Commander Lawrence and June has been really fascinating, and that's one of the relationships I think we've enjoyed talking about most on our show. Um, and his his clear, unending love for his wife, Mrs. Lawrence, is is something that can be kind of baffling at times, um, but it's there, and we see a lot of evidence of it um, in his actions. So I kind of want to follow up about her character, so our friend Two Thirds Ski on Twitter asked if we can, if you would be able to clarify at all what Gilead's stance is on psychiatric care and medicine, um, medical treatment in general, and where you got the inspiration for the way the show treats those things. Um, well, it, it is Julie Dressen who plays um, Mrs. Lawrence. It's just this a wonderful actress, and she's so patient. Uh, you know, you see that she doesn't need she doesn't need to kind of put her whole character out there on a plate. You find out so little at a time. I just I adore her. So in terms of uh, dealing with mental health on on our show, which is a big issue for me, I have you know uh, I I have anxiety depression disorder. It's a it's endemic amongst television writers, which I'm sure every, no one's surprised by. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, you know, we, 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 it's something that I don't think is represented realistically on television very often. Um, the character of, of Mrs. Uh, Lawrence has bipolar disorder that she's had her whole life, but now it's, it's unmedicated and untherapied. So before she was on medication and now she's not. Now the reason she's not is that not because Gilead doesn't believe in that. Gilead's totally pro-science. They're the ones who cleaned up the environment. They'll do anything to save the kids. They, you know, they, they have big, fancy hospitals. They're not keeping the drugs from her. But the drugs are hard to get because most drugs aren't made in the U.S. Most drugs are made in another country. And so uh, some part of the process is. So the drugs are coming in basically through the black market um, or through the legal routes. But when they come through the legal routes, she doesn't know whether she's getting a full dose, a half a dose, or baking soda. And that's the problem. She doesn't have unmedicated uh, bipolar. She has strangely medicated, inconsistently yeah. medicated bipolar, where sometimes she gets what she's supposed to get, sometimes she doesn't, sometimes she gets what she's supposed to be on for three weeks, and it turns out she isn't taking anything. So later on in the season, they do talk about the fact that they can't get anything through the black market even. So it's really someone who is not it, it, she's she's struggling with all the stresses of her life in Gilead, of course, in addition to this 
um, disease that she has that she says at a couple of points, it's like, Jesus, you know, I'm, I'd really like to do something more than take herbal tea. I'd just like to be back <laughs> on my medicine. Yeah, you know? and, yeah. And, she, and there is no, is no medicine. But they are not, Gilead would treat her 100% if they could. Um, they just, it's not within their capabilities because they are a pariah nation. It's the same thing that's happening in other countries. I mean, yeah. you know, Prozac is tough to get, you know, and if you live in a country where they don't have a functioning government or the government doesn't function in the international community, how do you think that stuff comes in your country? It just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. As uh, someone who really struggles with um, anxiety and depressive disorder myself, and I'm very close to two individuals who have bipolar disorder and it's completely different for both of them. I've really appreciated how thoughtfully and realistically it's been portrayed this season. I think this is the season where it's talked about the most and, you know, it may be alluded to in other seasons, mostly because of the psychological torture that so many people are undergoing in the show. But um, that's something that's really been uh, very meaningful for me personally this season. Well, yeah, for me too. And I just love the way that Julie plays it as someone who's sick, not someone who's yeah. a mad woman and an addict. It yes. starts out and she's aware. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she's totally aware. Yeah, she knows, I mean, she's, she's but it doesn't mean she's aware able because to... she went through a long period of drug clarity. She, yes. she was fine for a long time. And so now she's looking back and it's flowers for Algernon. She's like, Jesus Christ. Oh, what an know, apt. normal fucked up self as opposed to another yeah. kind of fucked up self. What an apt description. Also one of my favorite yeah. books. Oh, also one of your favorite books. Nice. Uh, so uh, leading into that kind of led into something somebody else asked us was, was um, on set for the show itself. Uh, and this is something I'd never even thought about. Um, are there any available professional mental health options for cast members, crew members or anyone who else who struggles with the darkness and kind of the intensity and subject matter of the show? Uh, there, there are the unions and, and our show is entirely a union show. They have, uh, you know, supportive health services, all that stuff. We shoot in Canada, where all that stuff is also free and available for everybody. And there's Shout out Canada. helpful people to, <laughs> people to help you navigate that system if you if you need to. Um, our, uh, so yes, of course, and um, you know, uh, you know, in addition to people who are there to make sure people are physically safe, people are there to make sure everybody's emotionally safe. The strange thing is that. On the set is the place where we have the least issues because the actors are such pros and they're also to a person kind of not methody. So none of them are in character except when we're actually doing it. And mm. you know we have Lizzie who who seems very intense, and then the moment it's over is laughing and swearing. And then we've got Yvonne who turns from Serena into a, you know a giant Australian. <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, you know. As soon as we say, as soon as we say, cut, and then you know, Joe finds it's the most lovely man. So, in fact, it's one of the most relaxed, fun, easygoing sets I've ever been on. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is just Elizabeth Moss. She's a, you know, she's just celebrated 30 years in SAG, and and you know, she's not even 40 yet. So, she's wow. been doing this for a very long time, and she's a pro. Um, you know, we didn't hire. We, we tried very carefully not to hire anybody who had who was um, who had a reputation for being, you know, difficult. Because I don't. I think it's fair to the other cast members, um, and so that helped a lot. But I, you know, I also think that 
and this is I I don't know how much your audience you know thinks about this, but uh, some actors do a lot of their work on set, kind of as they're doing the scene. These guys all do their work off set, hmm. so they've gone through emotional all their decisions, all their discussions with me, everything. So they show up on set having kind of the emotional part of that process, they've handled some of it off set. So when they're on set, both it moves more quickly um, and they um, don't have to do some of that torturous emotional work in front of, you know, their fellow actors. Uh, but it's, you know, we, we, um, I, w- I thought the show would be a lot more wearing on on the actors, and uh, but it does. It seems to be that everybody, you know, it's a tough time politically for everybody, and people are worried about the world. It's nice to feel like you're doing something, even if it's something small, to bring that conversation out there. So I think that helps people keep their mental health. Very true. So something you just mentioned about you know kind of the world of Gilead, and a lot of people, you know, this is one of those shows that, for all the information that we do have, we have so little. Um, regarding the bigger picture of Gilead. And this season, we've kind of gotten our first glimpse at how Gilead is attempting to establish itself as a sovereign state so that the rest of the world will kind of view it as a legitimate country. Uh, but the majority of what we've seen has been from the Gilead side of things. And some people are interested. Our users, uh, Nanoshka Mumukeas, Christian Tursky Tatelman, uh, Chelsea, and Tina all want to know if we're ever going to get to see things from the other side of the aisle. Are they going to see things from... Uh, the Canadian perspective, or even from the Mexican delegate who seemed to be pro-Gilead with the children. Uh, any other interactions with those countries kind of from the perspective of the countries looking in on Gilead? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the show has a political realm all the time. That, but, uh, you know, the show's The Handmaid's Tale, and it's June's point of view, and it's the show about The Handmaid. It's not the... You know, you know, maybe sometime there'll be, you know, the diplomat's tale. Or, but this one is really June's point of view. And for me, what makes her relatable is the fact that she's experiencing governance the way I'm experiencing governance. You know, I have no idea what, you know, people do all day long when they're, you know, ambassador to Sweden or whatever. So I think for June, you want her to – we want to find out what June would find out, not um, what we want to find out. There's a lot of things that we're – very interested in, but you got to keep, you know, this is a big world and you got to keep the perspective narrow where you get lost. You stop caring about the people and you start kind of checking off things in your head like, okay, now I know, you know, how their military works. Now I know what I do, what they do with transgender people, or now I know what they do with, with what they did with, with the Jews or what have you. I, I don't want to do checklist TV. I mean, we, you know, it's, you, you, there are some things you'll find out about. And you guys do a certainly a good job of culling through to get clues of a little thing for a wider picture. But um, you're never going to have a guy with a, a pointy stick at a, like, going to what it's like to do Excellent, excellent. Uh, so we're going to lighten things up here a little bit because I found this question kind of fascinating. Uh, this is from our user, Lumeria, and, uh, and coupled with another question from Monica Patel on Instagram. Uh, she said, where did, where did June get the Louis Vuittons? That she wore, and the complete outfit that she wore to Jezebel's, because she obviously is not carrying it around in quote the red center suitcase. Uh, so if you can, <laughs> it was one of those uh, for people who have seen the last episode where she you know has to go to Jezebel's and deal with Billy and uh, Commander Winslow in the way she does. Uh, they're just curious where did those clothes come from? Well, I would say considering where we are now and considering where 
Gilead's stance on sexy outfits that probably there is a large amount of extra sexy outfits lying around in Gilead somewhere. <laughs> I do not think it's hard to get your hands on any, you know, nice little black dresses or any Louboutins or anything like that. All of that stuff, I think, is is super available for any commander who wants it for any particular reason. Oh, my gosh. Um, but I was hoping she got it from Mrs. Lawrence. That's what I thought. I was like, maybe, you know, before when Mrs. Lawrence yep. was more healthy and, you know, Gilead hadn't happened yeah. yet. Maybe along with, you know, the art collection, that's something that they kept stored away. Uh, we just got to... Oh, exactly. And, and <laughs> also, you know, Wizzy... Wizzy designed the dress and she designed the last dress she wore to Jezebel's as well um, huh. because she doesn't ever get to wear anything like that in the show. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, I, I mean, she doesn't ever, the poor thing, she has the same wardrobe all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, the men at you know, least I don't think she's ever going to wear red the rest of her life. Exactly. So, yeah, couple, so it, it was, it was nice to switch it up. And I, and I, I thought the, the Louboutins, I actually, when we had our choice, I chose them because they seemed the most dangerous, not because of the. I didn't know that the the red soul meant you know a particular brand because I'm a boy, but um, <laughs> you know uh, I I didn't know that meant anything. But it seemed like they were the most scary to get kicked in the face with. So and that's what happened. So that is absolutely that true. Um, I think they'd yeah. all be scary to get get to we to get kicked with. I mean, considering the way it ended up for Commander Winslow. I would like to delve into a couple questions about Margaret Atwood because it's one of those things as the show has progressed, it's kind of gotten pushed into the back seat. So I'm going to let Sarah take this part, if you don't mind. Um, so nope. has has her sequel affected the direction of the show in future seasons now that this is a thing? Good question. Um, uh, Margaret, you know, Margaret and I talked about the sequel and what she was planning to do in the sequel. I don't think I'm trying to... I mean, it's hard enough to try to write a show that, you know, is based on a classic work of literature. To right. write a show that's sandwiched between two classic works of literature it makes it seemingly impossible to go from very hard to impossible. So, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, cover ground, you know, based on I know what Margaret's going to cover and I'm going to cover other ground. So, um, but we did talk about what, we were doing and how characters were going to get, end up and she had a few requests don't kill this person those kinds of things ha! yeah we that's the follow-up actually is do you still consult with her on script writing and does she like where you've taken it um you'd have to ask her she's very she's incredibly blunt in general and she is <laughs> uh -huh. blunt about liking the show but i don't i don't want to certainly i don't want to mansplain for margaret atwood like if you if you ever want to mention to her that you like this podcast that maybe she would do an interview with, oh my goodness. we would be happy to accommodate and also you would make one of my personal life goals come true. You'd make you make um the time for that. Well <laughs> it is my personal life goal too. I mean I loved the I loved the book when I when I read it in college and now, you know, here I am. I, you know, I actually she's my friend. I mean she's this you it's know crazy. she treats me like a writer, which is just oh, insane. Anyway, so, but do we we do we consult on on scripts um, uh, consistently through the whole thing? She's busier than the four of us combined. She's incredible. So, um, but we do. We she reads every script. She reads every outline. Usually, I, you know, I started to talk to her about what my thoughts would be for season four about halfway through season three because that's when I start thinking about 
you know, this is kind of where this story is going to end. And so what might I want to do the next time? So we, you know, talk and I try to literally I try to fit into her schedule, you know, when we when she has time to to talk to me and to. uh, But, you know, almost always she's more encouraging for me to make large swings and large changes than I'm comfortable doing. (laughs) So let me follow up on that because you said an interesting thing that made me think about something. So you got this showrunner job to do this this project that you're super passionate about. What was it like the first time you had to go meet Margaret Atwood to say, here's what I think we should do? How terrifying was that? Or was it? I mean, you're a, you're a television veteran, so it's not the first time you've had to present anybody with an idea of what you're going to do. But this this is a personal project and passion project. So talk to us about that, because I don't think I've ever talked to you about that or asked you that question. So tell us what it was like the first time that you turned that over to her. I know what you what you were feeling inside. When I first met Canadian Canadian National Treasure Margaret Atwood. Yes, yes, um, yes, Bruce. Yeah. Uh, well, I I went up to Toronto. Luckily, she had read my script already, so I wrote my I wrote the first two episodes and sent them to Margaret to read. And that was not a weekend where I went to the bathroom very often. Let me tell you, <laughs> um, it was like, horrifying. And, but she really liked him. So I already knew going into the breakfast that, that, I, that she liked what I was doing um, with the script. Now, you know, she, she's kind of an expert in having her work adapted. In, in, in this, this particular piece of work has been a play, has been a movie, has been an opera, has been a ballet. So she was, even from the beginning, very encouraging of me to change things, and I was not as excited i was not as comfortable changing things um so she she was pushing in that direction but i think um after she saw the first couple of episodes um she uh liked them and and um i I think the difference between the way she writes and the way i write besides she writes much better is that i tend to be much more you know it's it's much more dramatic uh you know because it's i'm doing not a novel but i'm doing a dramatic you know, form. So th- that's the big difference. And I think that that's, she thinks that's entertaining and interesting, the, how I kind of take it and just take w- w- where I slice the story up to make it as, you know, cliffhangery as possible, given the world of the Hamlet tale. But she's been, I, I, I mean, first of all, she's very uh, funny. She's, she's obviously super duper smart, but also so well read you know, and and I'm not. Um, uh, I have <laughs> dyslexia, and I, I I'm not very well read at all. Um, and uh, so she always assumes that I've read this, you know, book by Trollope, and I haven't read, you know, anything. <laughs> so uh, I have to I have to often say, no, no, I haven't read that. Tell me the story. Uh, but she is, um, you know, may we all be uh, as sharp of mind. But the most interesting thing that I find is that she, I have very picky questions about what she was thinking about when she wrote the original book. <laughs> she probably started writing that book 40 years ago, sat down at the, you know, with a pencil and paper for Handmaid's Tale. I wouldn't, and she's written a bunch in the interim. I wouldn't remember what I was thinking about why I chose this. Why did I choose Cambridge over this? Why did I choose, why, why did they use the King James Bible, not the Geneva Bible? You know, all of these really picky questions. And she remembers all the answers. And it's not a function of age that I'm 
talking about with her memory. It's just a function of, of the amount of creative work she's done in between and to remember those. So as a, she seems to, it seems to be fun for her to go, no, no, I made this because you get to someone in the world is actually interested in those questions that the only other person in the world interested was her. You know, uh, you know, I, I care about the picky stuff that's so picky that no one else cares about. I knew you were going to say that she remembered that. Just having read enough of her work, I'm yeah. like, I, I knew she was going to remember all of those little details from 40 years ago. I can't remember what I did yesterday. She has an incredible, yeah, I know. She has incredible memory for, for, for those kinds of things that, that not only does she have a great memory, but she, but she had such clear thinking when it came to making the decision that even hearing her recount it is just, an, you know, just another level of being impressed. So. That's fantastic. Uh, so we're going to wrap it up with this last question here um, because several people needed the answer. And I've, I've also seen various posts of people say, uh, saying various numbers that they think um, uh, the answer to this is. So I'm going to let Tiana take this one. Yes, this is a very important question to a lot of a lot of fans of the show. Um, Yasmin, Naomi Weinstein, Gilladian, and Robin Goldman um, all sent in this question. And we, we also really want to know. Will there still be 10 seasons? Please say yes. <laughs> um, it depends if, if each one's two episodes long. No. Uh, <laughs> my, my, I, it's so funny how, you know, it's, 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 I'm the same way. I just don't ever want to, the story is endlessly fascinating to me. Um, uh, I don't think there'll be 10 seasons. What I think is my aim is, to, have, to be done, to tell this story to the end of this story, The Handmaid's Tale, June's story. And then um, when, when we get to the end of that, you have something nice that you can tie up and put next to the book, you know, Handmaid's Tale on your shelf, and it's a good companion piece. It's not, you know, there, there have been other dramatic, dramatized versions of it, certainly not definitive, but what you want to have is something that helps illuminate the the book and bring some things to life and, and dramatizes something that shows you some things you weren't able to get from the book, at least under the guidance of Margaret, if not under the actual hand of Margaret Ellen. So that's what I'm hoping kind of in the end it means. Um, and, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, it's, it's a big universe. You know, I never thought I'd, you know, want to do other shows in Gilead, but I'm fascinated by it in a way that I didn't think I would be. Interesting. So what you're saying is that you, uh, you hope is that, your show will sit next to um, Canadian treasure. Margaret Atwood will be the show by American television legend Bruce Miller. <laughs> side by side. American treasure. Side by side. Uh, yeah. I, would I think say that's what you said. That's what you said without saying that. It's right. okay. It's American. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, oh, here's our other question I just thought of. Um, do you have a couple of passports or some access to Canada that we can get to? Canadian yeah, like, citizenship is yeah. Just, you know, for we know the table know. and immediate family. They, they're so lovely up there, um, <laughs> and especially especially our TV version of it. But, um, no, they are they are spectacular people, and, and there's they're having their own influx of refugees, and when you see the way they're handling it versus the way we're handling it, um, it's a big difference. Uh, <laughs> and so it's nice. We shoot up there. Our crew is Canadian. Our post-production department is entirely up there all our effects are done up there you know we have our cast lives there when they're shooting and and sometimes some of them live there all year round now it's just the, 
Toronto's been wonderful with us, and it is a pain in the ass to have a TV show shooting anywhere near you, so I appreciate it immensely. <laughs> well, well, we appreciate it because uh, the product that you're putting out is fantastic, and we clearly enjoy it. Yeah. Um, my one last question, and I just thought about this today, and this is it. This is really for my pleasure more than anything. Um, do you ever feel like when you're writing this show and running this show, um, after you turn on the TV to see what's happening in the real world, like you are involved in some giant meta version of the Twilight Zone where the things that you write just keep becoming true? It's horrible. I mean, imagine sit around and think of, okay, well, what, what, what could the worst government in the world do to people? And then you, you know, then it's almost a year later, 10 months later, I turn on the TV and while the show is on, that's happening. It's a terrible feel. People in cages. You know, it makes you not want to think of anything. It makes you want to just sit in your room and because you do feel a little like you're giving people ideas or you know showing them that you know you know making people accept terrible things that are happening because you're showing them as possibilities on your show um i don't certainly you know pretend to have that kind of influence but you can't help feel that way and so it's it's a terrible feeling every time anything in our show is at all related to something happening in the world. That being said, the, re- the way we decide on not what's happening in the show, but the way things would be happening is done with a lot of help from people who actually know, from mm-hmm. the UN, um, from think tanks, from academics, from people you know, uh, in the government on other levels. It, they've been spectacularly helpful, especially the UN. Um, so knowing what happens in the real world, you, you are a step closer to knowing at least what your, you know, choice list is for what might happen. But it's still, it's just, it's an awful, it's an awful feeling. I, I'm really hoping that my show becomes completely irrelevant and you guys have nothing to talk about. Uh, we hope so, too. We hope that our podcast goes away. <laughs> if given the option of having this podcast forever or having everything's go everything go back to normal and we don't have a podcast, we'll, okay, we'll take no. Okay, let's be fair. Podcast. Normal is still not great for okay. everybody. Well, you know, it's true. Okay. But I'm with you. But yeah, I hope my kids watch it one day and think it's totally extreme and wild and yeah. completely ridiculous and nothing like that would ever happen. No. I yeah. clearly hope they feel that way. Like when my kids watched when my kids watched In and Out. Yeah. The movie with Kevin Klein. They were yes. like, I don't yeah. understand this. Sir. Who? People care. Yeah, it didn't make any sense at all. It's like, I there's nothing going on in this movie. He's a gay man who's te- what the hell's going on? I don't yes. Understand. yes, that that has to make you at least feel good inside, yeah. right? That you've got we've gotten to you know, that got chance got that that point in something. Yeah, we've so. got to the point where that's a non-story. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I've got to go, guys. All right, thank thanks, Bruce. Very much. Thank you so much. It was so um, great talking to you. I'm I'm a huge, I'm a big fan of the show, and I I really I love listening to what do both. Uh, your opinions and your analysis and your guesses and everything. So please. Our heads going. are exploding over here. We still Me can't personally, believe it. I like it. Well, we appreciate uh, everything you, so you do much. and the access that you've given us and even, you know, considering coming on this show. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being supportive like you always are. And uh, thanks for taking time with us today. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Thanks you so too. much. Bye. Bye. Bye.